Welcome to the UK Run Chat podcast. I'm Joe Williams, and on this episode, Michelle speaks with Johnny Huntington. Johnny is an elite paraskier, climber, and explorer. A former British Army officer and ultra-distance runner, he had a brain bleed in 2014 that left him paralysed from the neck down on his left side. Following extensive rehabilitation and discharge from the Army, he returned to the world of elite sport as a disabled athlete competing for Great Britain in cross-country skiing. He is now setting his sights on becoming the first ever disabled person to travel from the edge of Antarctica to the South Pole solo, unsupported and unassisted. The South Pole expedition is not just a personal challenge for Johnny, it's about breaking boundaries within the disabled community and inspiring the world to recognise the limitless potential within each of us. Before we go into the interview, a quick word from our earphone partners Ola Dance. During the Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales, which run until the 30th of November, Ola Dance is offering an incredible 25% off its OWS series headphones. Uh, so if you're looking for superior sound quality and comfort while staying aware during your outdoor runs, then look no further than the Ola Dance OWS headphones. They've got the OWS Pro, the cutting edge 2023 model. The OWS 2 offers the best bang for your buck with its extended battery life. And if you need something budget-friendly, the OS1 is your go-to choice. You can find all of these on www.oladanceshop.com. In the meantime, enjoy this interview between Michelle and Johnny, and we will see you on the next episode. Hi, Johnny. Thank you so much for joining us on the UK Run Chat podcast today. How are you? Yeah, really good, thanks, Michelle. No, pleasure to, uh, pleasure to speak to you. It's really kind of you to have me on. Yeah, so so you've just finished what most people will consider an epic ultra marathon from Manchester to London, finishing last week, haven't you? Um, but might surprise people to to know that that's actually in training for a much bigger challenge. Would you like to just introduce yourself briefly? Tell us what you're kind of aiming to achieve over the next twelve to fifteen months, and um, and just give people a feel for for what this interview is going to be about. Yeah, sure. So. Um... My name's Johnny Huntington. I'm a, um, it's a, it's a, I have a weird job. Um, I tend to refer to myself as like a, a an endurance athlete and a polar explorer, um, just in sort of in lieu of anything more pithy. But um, I'm a I'm a para athlete as well. So I'm I had a uh, brain bleed in 2014, and um, yeah, have been sort of physically disabled since then. Yeah, but you've got some big big goals coming up, haven't you? Yeah, so I mean, the sort of the, I guess the the sort of landmark one that I'm, you know, that everything's pointing towards at the minute, is in 2024. I'm seeking to become the first ever disabled person to ski to the South Pole solo on solo and unsupported, um, which will be a, hopefully a really cool trip. Yeah. <laughs> It certainly sounds it. So, I mean, wh- where does that goal come from? T- just tell us a little bit about how you started with, um, you know, just getting into endurance sports. Really, where does that come from? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a it's a, a, a long and windy history, if you don't mind. But I'll try, yeah, and keep it, uh, try and keep it sort of reasonably brief. Like, I I started. I, I properly got into running. F- as running as opposed to doing it for other sports um in like basically a mate tricked me into running a half marathon in 2011 um and i did that and it went pretty well and i kind of thought actually that was really fun 
I like doing that. Um, and, and I'm quite good at it. And, um, so it kind of, it kind of grew legs from there really. And I, on the back of that entered a marathon and I kind of, I was very, very like naive to the landscape at the time. So I went online and just found a marathon that was, I think like a couple of months away. Yeah. Um, and and it, t- it it happened to be one of the endurance life events who do like the coastal trail series yeah. um and i i would never really done any trail running before so i i literally i think it was about i think it was about 2 weeks before the race went into like bath because i was living living in somerset with my parents at the time and like picked up a pair of trail shoes because they were new to me like didn't know what trail shoes were um, so like grabbed a pair of zero drop innovates, um, just literally not knowing any better and, um, did the Gower, um, coastal trail series marathon in November of 2011, um, and came eighth in it. Um, oh. and, and that was kind of the, the start of the love affair with trail running really. Um, I, I did that race and, and on the back of that, I kind of thought, this this is something that I like and actually as as you'll know because trail running is kind of a bit vague in terms of the distances yeah um like and we'd been told to like as we finished basically we were told oh yeah like a bit of the coast path had collapsed so actually we think you ended up running about 29 miles (laughs) um so it's kind of yeah my my first marathon was my first ultra as well and it was um, but I, I, I absolutely loved it. Like it was an incredible day, really, really cool. Everyone was super friendly. Um, and I kind of thought, you know what, like I can, I can really get on board with this. Um, and so at the same time, I kind of, I, I did what I tend to do with most stuff, which is to start reading about it as well. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was the same sort of time that, um, Dean Carnassus had bought his book out. Um, what were the other two that were around at the time? It's sort of Born to Run and Feet in the Clouds. That's right. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it was that kind of, um, you know, some some really like really really well written books about running were out, and like, you know, they were just telling these sort of epic tales of hundred milers in the states and stuff. And I was kind of like, you know what? Like, I reckon. I reckon that's a good, like a good thing to aim for. Like I don't really want to, I sort of don't care too much about doing the same race again and trying to do it quicker. And obviously, you know, trail running, you kind of one marathon isn't equitable to another. So, so kind of running for better times seems slightly redundant under those circumstances. Um, so kind of got, got kind of bitten by the bug pretty quickly, really. Um, like did a 35 miler two months later. I mean, I was, I was lucky in that I was only sort of 24, 25 at the time. So I was sort of young enough that I was, you, you know, able to recover really fast. Like I wasn't having to take masses of downtime in between these races. And I'd played loads of field hockey as a, you know, like as a student and growing up and stuff. So sort of had like a good base level of fitness anyway. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of, just just really embraced effectively like bimbling around trails and stuff um 
and like going out for hours at a time and you know you'd get to the point where like your mum would come looking for you I've no idea how she expected to find me given that she knew what I was doing and she was also in the car but like you know it's sort of yeah you just you know you kind of would just go and get lost and and you know basically go out until you stopped enjoying it or it got dark or you got hungry yeah, um, yeah, that's the best thing about trail running, isn't it? You can just go out and explore. It doesn't. You don't really need a direction, do you? I guess. That, yeah, that's totally yeah. it. And like I, you know, sort of absolutely loved it. And it was, I, I didn't know this at the time because it was a little. I was, I was sort of training to join the army at the same time, but I hadn't, um, I hadn't kind of signed on the dotted line yet. Um, but it was kind of this was all incredibly good training for all of that as well. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, so I, I sort of slowly, slowly got into this super niche at the time, you know, this is back in like 2011, 2012 um, world of ultra running. And like, I think really the it, it did at the time seem to be a very niche community. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't really think it hit the mainstream at all to a certain extent. And like, you know, I think the only the only real online resources that that I found that were sort of ones I kept on going back to were irunfar.com, which still is around and exists, etc. And then the, there was a super niche blog called like Kevin Sayers Ultra Running Blog, right? Um, which I don't know if you've ever come across, but it's it's great to like it. It's just it's literally an archived web page. Oh, okay. Um, and it's great to dot around that it's kind of it's one that seems to have been like contributed to over time by like lots of different ultramarathon runners, pri- primarily I think in the US. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of everything from some some good nutrition strategies and stuff, all the way to kind of a slightly tongue in cheek like t shirt etiquette. Right. <laughs> you know around races where it was considered slightly rude to turn up to a shorter race in the in yeah it was considered slightly rude to turn up to a shorter race in the t-shirt of a longer race that you'd already completed oh, right. oh i never knew that <laughs> <laughs> i've probably broke etiquette in the past oh, i was i i turned up to one in september of this year <laughs> and stepped out of the car and saw someone wearing a utmb shirt and i kind of i was just like oh mate you don't know you, you don't know how many how many etiquette rules you're breaching right now it's uh but it, I, I you know I think it was all sort of in in good fun like I don't think anyone really cares but um no it's just, it was just these stupid little things that was kind of a really nice you know you you kind of felt that you were part of a a, a really underground community of people doing something that was super peculiar yeah um and that kind of you you know you turn up to these races and you kind of felt like you at least got each other yeah um which was really cool um so that that was kind of how i got into like ultra running and you know proceeded over the course of the next couple of years to continue to to run sort of long distances up to sort of 50 60 and 100 milers yeah um which I probably should have paused for a year when I went to Sandhurst because you basically spend a year getting thrashed around fields and sleep deprived generally and stuff anyway. Yeah, that um, looks it looks very tough, the training there. Is is it as tough as it looks? Um 
I mm, sort of like I think sorry that was a that was a bit of a bullshit answer but like um it, yes and no is is kind of the best way of looking at it I think only in the sense that um you know being sleep deprived is really hard like you mm. can't train for that it's feel it's miserable anyway like I mean anyone with a child will know um that it's pretty pretty grim um but at the same time you know the course is designed for people to pass it yeah. Um, and I think I was in the really fortunate position that I turned up like very, very fit compared to most people because I'd been ultra running in my, in my free time, basically. Yeah. So, you know, the, the sort of prospect from my point of view of spending like a week or two in the field, sort of tabbing around carrying heavy backpacks and stuff like that was stuff that I did for fun anyway. Yeah. Um, and it, it did make it like, it made life considerably easier going through training that I was physically fit because it just meant that when you were out on these exercises and stuff even though the things you were doing were designed to be difficult anyhow you know your your ability to recover from and your ability to resist fatigue was so much better than most people's that you you know you kind of everyone was struggling to a certain extent you were just struggling less than anyone else um you know if nothing else from a morale perspective is always quite nice um, well, yeah. I mean, is that is that a purely physical thing, or does the mental aspect of? I mean, you've done hundred milers. That must take an immense amount of just hard talking with yourself. Really, d- you know, did did that help you with? Yeah, you know what? It, the army? Yeah, and this it is- it really did, and actually, um, particularly when I was going through rehab as well. Actually, like I always. I always used to think of my moods during hundred milers as like a sort of the, the classic like sine cosine um, sort of wave. So, yeah. it, you know, it was sort of, if you've got your baseline as the middle of the graph, then you are going to be constantly dipping below that and then going above it and then below it again. And, and you've kind of got as, you know, as, as I'm sure most sort of athletes will know, like as you build up more and more fatigue, you kind of, you lose a bit of control over your moods. Um, and so you tend to get this pattern of, you know, either being very low or being quite high during races. Um, and I think certainly for me, like, I I would suggest that probably the ultra runners or one of the ultra runners goals is to kind of try and level that curve out as much as you can so that you're not, um, you know, getting these massive mood swings. You're just kind of able to ride it out nice and smoothly um but like yeah i i sort of constantly refer to rehab as like it was like running an ultra marathon you know you you effectively have sort of good days and bad days and you're trying to level them out as much as you can um and and you're 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 also very much operating in that environment because the you know the big goal of rehab is so massive um you're you're sort of going back to using like the checkpoint system um so to enable you to kind of take stuff like a day at a time um so no it was it was it was really provenant from my point of view that I had had experience of doing this stuff and I think in particular like the difference between doing it as you know or doing you know long outdoor stuff that's pretty miserable as part of the military and doing the ultras is that you do the ultras voluntarily. Yeah. Um, or I, sorry, I should say, obviously I volunteered to join the army, but like um, there's, there is something 
that's very um you know helps you i think develop a personal resilience yeah. if if you know that it's your fault you're out there <laughs> um like i i think that's something where you you know because there's nothing there's nothing to stop you from stopping um you know if it's just you that sort of got yourself there 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 isn't any of that there's no peer pressure there's no institutional pressure or you know i'm failing my job if i you know if i stop now it's simply a case of i've <laughs> you know i've come here of my own volition for a nice weekend yeah. out <laughs> um it's now three in the morning and i'm really cold and tired um please can i stop <laughs> and it's you know it, it's kind of you really do have to search quite deep within you know inside yourself at that point um to to kind of give yourself the answers in terms of why you're not going to stop and i think that was something which you know i i really benefited from in terms of the stuff that happened to me afterwards um so that was that was yeah so kind of in a weird way like really really thankful that i had sort of fallen into this slightly perverse um sort of world of ultra running before i you know before i got injured yeah um, so, yeah that, that's really helped you hasn't it so this is now a good point then to talk about about your stroke so so what happened and you know how how do you come back from that after being so active yeah so i um i was in the gym in winchester so i i had literally i'd commissioned from sandhurst in april of uh, 2014 um and i had uh for, for for the record i'd i'd run my my last ultra as a as an able-bodied athlete in march of that year i ran the uh trans grand canaria yeah. um which was so cool like it's kind of one of those ones if you if you told me in retrospect that was going to be the last ultra i ever ran as an ab athlete i'd kind of be pretty happy with it like yeah. it was an amazing race 78 miles twenty nine thousand feet again like super lumpy the whole like the whole island came out to like cheer you on as you went round it was absolutely incredible like yeah that was that was a, a real real highlight but then fast forward to june of that year so 5th of june that year i was um in the gym in winchester which was where my phase 2 training establishment was and um yeah was was doing a bit of a workout and uh, over the course of about 15 minutes basically my my leg and my hand on my left side the only way I could describe it is like they just started feeling a bit weird. Yeah. Um, and like I sort of couldn't like got to the point where I, I don't know, you you know how when something doesn't feel right, you kind of try and stretch it out a little bit or you kind of think, oh, you know, don't know what's going on here or whatever. And so I'd sort of tried putting my hand above my head and I couldn't do it. Oh. Um and then I I was sort everything it's a difficult one to describe because I, you know, you're so, um, you're, I was so unclear in terms of what was actually happening. Um, but I was fully conscious the whole time. So effectively over the course of about 15 minutes, I went from standing to sitting to lying on the floor on my back. Um, and over that period, basically from the neck down on my left side, like the entirety of my left side, um went was completely paralyzed so i had no movement at all below my neck um still had full or mostly sensation so i could still like feel it i just couldn't move it at all mm -hmm. um 
and I was completely conscious, like no issues with speech or anything like that. Unfortunately, my my officer in charge of me was having uh, physio like just across the other side of the gym. So I sort of stuck my good hand in the air and, and basically shouted medic. And um, he recognized some of the signs of a stroke. So they called an ambulance immediately. I was taken to like ICU in Winchester, etc. And that was, you know, that was effectively the start of a two and a half year rehab journey um throughout the course of which they um they they found that I'd had a bleed in my brain um so I had a pool of blood in my brain when they scanned it that was about the size of a small satsuma um that was centered around the right motor cortex so yeah obviously hemispheres wise like right side of the brain controls left side of the body etc and um they weren't sure what had caused it because they obviously there was there was a big pool of blood there so they couldn't see anything um later discovered about nine months later this was discovered that it was called a cavernous malformation so it was basically a bit of blood vesseling that had formed incorrectly um which allowed a, a slight build up of blood um which in turn caused a slight increase of pressure in that area which caused this thing to to eventually burst um and we <clears throat> at like at the point at which they found out what it was because I had already done nine months of rehab and for neuro injuries, it's generally that six months is like your golden window. You're going to get, you know, your, your best results really fast over that period. And then you've got about two years um, in the main where anything outside of that two year period, you're unlikely to get like proper neurological recovery. Right. Um, so, at the nine month point, when they found out what had actually caused the bleed, they basically said to me, look, we can, you know, we can go in and operate and take this thing out so that it won't bleed again. But we're not 100% confident that we, or that the, the ops are never 100% success rate. So we may not get it all out, in which case it would just go back. Or we go in dig it out and we actually dig we have to dig through effectively i say dig it's a brain i'm sure that's brain surgery is a little bit more sophisticated than that but so, um, yeah. yeah so they, they poke something through something anyway but um but yeah they they basically said look we have to go through your motor cortex to get to the the bad vessel um so there is a, a high likelihood that we will re-damage the bit that you've just rehabbed um and I, I basically sort of said to my, you know, I was still walking with a pretty noticeable limp at that point. I mean, I, I still walk with a pretty noticeable limp now, but, um, you know, I'd, I'd done nine months of really hard rehab and I sort of said to my neurosurgeon, I was like, look, I, you know, obviously I don't have a reference point for this, but I'm, I'm reasonably inclined to accept the risk of another bleed um, on the basis that, I know how much rehab I've already done and I don't really want to compromise that. Um, But I sort of said, I was like, look, if you were in my position, what would you do? And he said, yeah, I I would leave it as well. So, you know, I've still got this bit of bad, uh, bad blood vesseling in my head. Um, But the risk of a rebleed is, is very, very small indeed. So I kind of think I'd rather crack on with what I've got um and you know if anything happens again we'll deal with it at that point in time so so whatever basically um but yeah so so coming back to um sort of life post injury like 
I was super fortunate in that I was sent to rehabilitate at Headley Court, which at the time was the military's like premier rehabilitation hospital. So, I mean, we were getting literally like it was nine to five, like five and a half days a week, you know, sort of Monday till Saturday lunchtime. And you are literally, it's like being at school. You're given a time, yeah, like you're given a rehab timetable, all the physios, like one-on-one physio, two-on-one physio, um, your hydro pool so you can learn to walk in a manner again which is like de-weighted so you're not damaging joints or anything and it allows you to get the patterning in really properly um, and and again it was it was super fortunate from my point of view that because I'd been a bit of a geek about running when I was when I was doing it um, you know I had a sort of amateur but workable comprehension of biomechanics yeah. All of these factors, which, you know, allowed me to, it, it, it just gave me a slightly better understanding of what I was trying to achieve when I was relearning to walk. Because um, I had to, like, with with my leg, because my leg was kind of the epicenter of the bleed, it's, it's effectively the lower down my body you get, the worse the injury gets. Okay. Um, but like, the when my hand sort of came back online i didn't have to learn to use my fingers again i had to strengthen them but my my brain knew how to use them properly um so like i i I played the violin as a kid um and like i can still play the violin i haven't had to like relearn any of that oh that's amazing yes whereas like with my foot and with my leg um it, it didn't know what to do right so with the walking, we literally had to go from scratch. Um, and, you know, you were, you were teaching yourself effectively like a muscle group at a time, yeah. like how it worked. Um, and it was a pretty, it was a very slow process, certainly. And, you know, there are, there's, there's a significant amount of function that I still don't have. Right. Um, so I, I don't, helpfully for a trail runner, I don't have any proprioception in my left ankle at all. Okay. Yeah, that must um, be very challenging. It's yeah, it's yeah. it's it's sort of you 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 certainly have to be very careful where you're putting your feet, basically. Yeah. Um and like I mean, yeah, it's sort of I you know, it it did make I mean basically for a long time I didn't think I was ever gonna be able to run again at all. Um just because there's you know, there's so much coordination at quite high speed involved. Um, that having to coordinate effectively the entirety of one limb like manually um, is pretty like is pretty intense Um, so I sort of left I left Headley like back end of 2015 having done two stints there uh, like not able to run at all Um, and basically had, had, had effectively got to the point where I was just like yeah I'm I'm pretty sure this is never gonna happen um and i got into through one of the military charities the armed forces para snow sports team i got into cross-country skiing um and i'd kind of the i'd when i was in hospital i had had i was listening to some random like podcast or desert island discs it was something like that um with a guy called ben saunders on it who is a very very highly accomplished 
uh, British polar explorer and former happens to be a former British army officer as well. Yeah. Um, and he's one of, I think, only three people ever to have soloed the North and South Poles. Right. And I was listening to him talking about soloing the North Pole, um, which I, I now, now that I've got a little bit more insight into it, um, know just how dangerous that is. Yeah. Um, and I mean, out, yeah, like outrageously dangerous, basically. That's terrifying, actually, um, just the thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, yeah, properly. And then, but that, like, I was, you know, at the time lying in hospital, unable to move an entire side of me. Um, but listening to him talking about the distances involved, and I think it was about 400, I can't remember whether it was kilometers or miles, but, you know, yeah, and and basically thinking at the time, yeah, that doesn't seem very far. Like that seems pretty, like that seems pretty doable. Um, and kind of, yeah, I don't know whether it was, I don't know whether it was just optimism or delusion. But I was sort of listening to that, and and like that, that definitely at that point sowed a seed. Yeah. Um, in terms of doing some of these, like super long distance events. Yeah. Um. And so then, yeah, when I when I got into cross country skiing, that was a real, um, like that was a real kind of light bulb moment for me because that was that was ultra distance running on snow with a bit of like fast downhill, like that that was ticking a lot of boxes. Like I really really loved doing that. Um, so it was yeah, sort of very very lucky from my point of view that I found this charity because all of the stuff that I couldn't do anymore because I, because I wasn't able to run again at the time. Yeah. Um, like I, I managed to sort of get back into certainly the same stuff that ultra running gave me was able to do that on skis. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the features of my injury, like the foot drop, the lack of proprioception and stuff, to a certain extent, a lot of those were masked simply by being on skis. Yeah. So, so is it is it a very different movement to running? Because I guess you, are you kind of picking your feet up on skis, or are you just sliding them? Having no, never so done you... any cross country <laughs> No, that's fine. So, um, yeah. no, I mean it is a much more sliding movement. Yeah. So you 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 sort of you would pick your feet up very very occasionally if you needed more grip, but you should be trying to like slide and glide being the the sort of operative adage um but like i think the there were still aspects of the sport i had trouble with um so like cross country is in two comes in two disciplines basically you have classic technique which is more backwards and forwards it's much more like running and then you have skate which is much more like ice skating but with long skis on okay um I can't skate because my injury, basically the lack of proprioception in my ankle prevents me from putting the edge in and pushing off it. Um, So yeah, so I I can't do like half of cross country, but the half that I could do was the classic side. Um, And actually in a way it was quite nice because it let me just concentrate on doing that. Um, And it was sort of, you know, again, it was pretty cool. Like you, you know, I sort of heard about some of these really like ninja ultra runners you know scott jurek cross-country skied in the winter killian obviously did a load of ski mountaineering you know you so it was it was pretty cool to be 
like getting more involved in a sport where there was such close intrinsic links to running. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I sort of, I, I wandered on and off the world cup circuit over the next like three years. Um, you know, I, I was not quick enough to be competing at the Paralympics and there were also, there wasn't a classification for me. Um, so the, the classifications basically all of the you compete either standing sitting or visually impaired which is standing okay um and everyone that fits within those categories competes in those three categories right um and they obviously they divide it as men men and women as well but so like so i was competing in the men's standing category and then what they do is that within that category your disability you're effectively like graded against a set of disability categories and whichever one you fit into that percentage time is taken off your your finishing time within a race um and then you get kind of your adjusted time yeah and then all of those adjusted times are then just ranked um so it's slightly convoluted i sort of i hope that's sort of clear enough for anyone listening because it is a slightly um convoluted system but it's it it is there there's such a diverse range of disabilities out there um that that it is the fairest way of doing it yeah, to so allow you kind of weight your disability to say this might hamper you more than somebody else it, exactly you exactly. kind of a time a bit of yeah time. that's it like yeah. it's by no means a perfect system but at the same time it is it is a system which is you know i i would suggest probably as inclusive as you're going to get yeah um the shame about it from my point of view is that my, you know, my, my disability wasn't accommodated for within that system. So I competed as a single below knee amputee. So I was an LW4, um, which was basically the lowest time factor. So I got no compensation for the fact that like, I couldn't basically couldn't turn right, oh, right. Yeah. Um, because of my injury and stuff. So, you know, we, and, and don't get me wrong, like, as I say, it's there's such a broad range of disabilities. You can't possibly hope to accommodate for all of them yeah. within the system. Um, but we ended up getting sort of the, you know, the beginning of the 2019 season, uh, like 2019 into 2020. And I raced at a uh, World Cup in Vukati in Finland and basically sat down with my coaches and team manager and stuff afterwards. And they, they just said to me, you know, it was the start of a new Paralympic cycle. And they just said to me, look, you know, we, we just, we need, we all need to be honest about this, that like, you're not going to make the Paralympics. Um, and it was kind of that thing where what, what genuinely did, cause I, I knew that as well. Yeah. Like, I, I knew that I was way off the pace. Um, and, you know, to be fair, they were really nice about it. Cause what had softened the blow considerably from my point of view is they basically said to me, look, this is not about you not trying hard enough or not putting in the effort where it counts etc like if you were turned up unfit we could do something yeah you know but the the reality is you've turned up as fit as you can be and just your injury doesn't let you compete um yeah so it was i mean yeah in, in a lot of ways it was and but the thing which was pretty cool about it is it it made me really consider like what place skiing was going to have in my life moving forwards yeah 
Um, and I either had to look at it in terms of, okay, this is, you know, this will be relegated to a hobby that I will do once a year or, you know, whenever I can afford it, when I want to enjoy it. Um, but, you know, doing skiing seriously is not a thing anymore. Um, or I view it in terms of, right, if I, you know, if I want to do something on skis, then I have to make that happen myself and I have to make that work myself. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of, you know, got home after that trip and was thinking about stuff and looking at stuff. And I'd, I'd been lucky to have been invited on some expeditions with another charity, the Adaptive Grand Slam, which is uh, run by a former parachute regiment officer. Um, and they do, again, it's getting disabled people, both military and civvies, into the outdoors space through sort of mountaineering and, and more expeditionary means. And yeah, I kind of, I basically was looking at it in terms of, okay, well, why why not look at doing something really long on skis? Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've done long before, I've done skiing before. Let's let's try and let's see if they go together well. Um and yeah, kind of mulled this over a lot and and eventually got to looking at the South Pole. Um and I, you know, had spoken to friends who had looked at, at going down there and doing stuff and was told you know it is pretty dangerous you do have to be technically proficient blah 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 which i i certainly was not at the time yeah. um but i then also looked at it in terms of okay understood all of that like i know there's a lot to learn but is is there actually anything in theory stopping me from going down there and doing it um you know if i if I tick all the boxes that I need to, to make sure that I'm competent and safe, etc. Like, is there anything stopping me from going down there? Um, you know, aside from factors that I can basically resolve. And the answer was, was no, there yeah. wasn't. Um, yeah. So hence, hence the kind of the, yeah, the seed that I think had been sown quite a long time ago, back when I was in hospital for doing, you know, weird, long, cold journeys and stuff sort of started germinating into this plan to to go down to the south pole um and i i was sort of doing lots of research as you've probably established by this point i'm pretty like i'm pretty nerdy about this stuff anyway yeah. um like it's good to be armed with knowledge though isn't it and other people's experience well exactly and i think yeah. it's yeah it sort of is one of those ones that like you you know i think you once you once you start to accumulate enough knowledge then you have to kind of pass it down a little bit in terms yeah. of okay what am i going to listen to and what am i going to maybe ignore um or what do i think's better certainly um but like yeah i certainly sort of sucking up as much knowledge as i as i can in the run up has been super valuable um I was really lucky in in 2020 at the start of lockdown to be able to get in contact with Ben Saunders and sort of pick his brains about it um and the thing actually that i've really loved about getting into it is that similar to sort of the you know similar to the ultra running community right at the start or certainly when i encountered it the the polar community is again just this sort of small small niche group of weirdos um most of whom have their own views on stuff and most of whom have pretty strong views on stuff yeah 
um, but but are more than willing to share those views. Um, and it's been a really cool experience going, you know, going and and speaking to some people from this community as a disabled athlete. Um, and and actually, the one thing which at no point in time has anyone ever queried um, is whether I'm going to be able to do it because of my disability. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, it's clear you have the self belief to do it, don't you? And you have been preparing yourself. I mean, what have you been doing physically to to get yourself there? Because it's in twelve months' time, isn't it? Yeah. So I've 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 been doing lots of running actually, which has been nice. I sort of managed to get back into running after a few false starts. Yeah. Um, like after I after I left the military, I kind of had a had a couple of of attempts at you know, I live in South Devon, so I live right next to the Southwest coast path. Um, and it always used to be where I did all my training and, and all of that. So I, I sort of had a couple of full starts going out on the coast path and, you know, like first time I tore my calf, which was super painful because like the muscles just don't work properly. Um, so like, I don't have really any eccentric control in my left leg at all. Um, particularly not in the left calf so like yeah going out in a set of yeah going out in a set of like zero drop shoes and trying to run trying to run 4k's from from scratch basically was a pretty stupid idea Um, but you kind of I think it's sort of you know you you get a bit of momentum in your feet and then you get overexcited and then yeah then you sort of hear a loud pop and you're just like oh yeah that's that's gonna sting in the morning Um, so I kind of I tried that and then I, I didn't try again for a long time um and i also like i had this i had this i think probably quite understandable hang up that i didn't like running outside i because i didn't like other people to see me run um completely understandable i think yeah yeah you know it's sort of one of those ones that even now like it's very very it's very very obvious to me and like i've you know i've since also done a master's in sports science so i'm pretty like in order to try and become more knowledgeable about my sports, my injury, etc. But like it's it's very obvious to me, like still when I'm running and stuff like that, that I'm injured. Um and to be honest, it's probably not very obvious to other people. Um yeah. it's just, just some bloke running really slowly. Um but like I I certainly had a big sort of psychological hang up about going out and 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 performing um particularly in something that i used to be so competent at um so lockdown for me actually in in march of 2020 was in a in a in a way a bit of a gift because it meant that i could go out onto the coast path on my own um and you know there wasn't anyone there and I mean I I must admit I sort of towards the end of it in particular was kind of taking the um you know the government's recommended hour of exercise and I was sort of like okay yes but that's for you know that's for normal people not for elite athletes so I might might have been doing a little bit more than that but I I, you know I, I was also entirely on my own and isolated for you know for for uh, many many kilometers in either direction so i kind of feel feel that was all right but um but no i you know so i i literally started running again like 2k at a time um and so over lockdown was pretty disciplined in terms of 
like increasing those distances very slowly and at a very manageable rate. Um, but it meant that by the time we'd gotten to the September of that year, um, I was able to run a marathon again. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that, that, I mean, to me, that seems like you've built up pretty quickly, you know, that's from doing virtually nothing to a marathon. That's, you know, that's great. So how, yeah. how did that, how did that feel then? Did that start to become so that, that normal, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of, I think I was, I mean, I think be, although I hadn't run in inverted commas, cause it's still pretty slow. Um, you know, I run about half the speed that I used to. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that is pretty much as, as fast as I can run. Um, so kind of anything above about 10 Ks an hour yeah. is, 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 is pretty much impossible for me just cause the cadence with which I cycle my left leg is not yeah. quick enough. Um, and even that is like a flat out sprint for me. It's not sustainable. Um, so I tend to sort of sit at about four to six Ks an hour. Yeah. Um, but actually the, like the thing that's quite cool about that is that, you know, like the, the reality is, is that that is, well, six Ks an hour is still pretty much a 24 hour, hundred mile pace. Yeah. Um, that's a good point actually. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of one of those ones that although it's, although it's still really slow, um, from an ultra runner's point of view, it's like, actually that's, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I sort of, I basically ignored, ignored speed work, which is pretty nice. Cause, uh, yeah, let's, let's be very clear. Like who likes doing, <laughs> who, who likes doing hill sprints and threshold sessions, you know? Um, yeah, let's save, save them for doing them on the ski erg when I'm indoors and there's a bin nearby, but, um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But I, I did find that I was at least able to go out and, you know, if I picked the right races that had really generous cutoff times, um, you know, I could go out and do a marathon in eight hours. Yeah. Um, and that was that was cool because it just meant that I was at least in some shape or form running again. Um, so, yeah, so that was that would have been kind of, I think, September 2020 that I did that. Um and then I, I did a, a big kayaking challenge in 2021. So I kind of running was useful for that because there's a surprising amount of, of leg work in kayaking. Yeah. Um, so there was some really nice crossover training there. And then I was looking for something to do in the summer of 2022, um, you know, just to, again, give myself something to train for that year. And way back in 2012, a friend of mine and myself had been looking at uh, potentially trying to set fastest known time for the Southwest coast path for the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like I had, you know, I had all the maps. We knew the, you know, we knew the route pretty well. We knew the um, like a lot. I mean, obviously I, I know the bit I live near, you know, like the back of my hand, Um but we'd done like bits of recce and yeah, and but it just never came off. Like for whatever reason, like both quite busy. 2012, it just never happened. And at the point at which you got injured, I just assumed it never, it, it was never going to. Yeah. Um, but then 
summer of 2022 i kind of dug these plans out again and basically thought okay fine well <laughs> you know the fastest known time is definitely off the table because i think i would have had to run straight for 10 days in order to do it at the speed i run at so that was definitely not going to happen um but i did think it was achievable just to finish it yeah um so I trained pretty solidly for six months and doing pr- pretty much back to um, effectively the 100 miler training that I had been doing previous. Yeah. Um, but I'd, basically, because I run so slowly, some of the distances that I used to train to are, are basically just not achievable in a in a day anymore. Okay. Um, so like, you know, you, you take a sort of... Um, 40 mile 40 mile saturday and a 30 mile sunday yeah. um and like you know if i was to try and do that i now nowadays i would be running for probably 16 hours on the on the saturday if not longer yeah. um and and then you know another good sort of 12 hours on the on the sunday and i i just didn't i you know was working full time at that point i just didn't have time so i basically changed everything into kilometers instead and that kind of made it more manageable so it's like right that's interesting yeah so you've just you've you've basically reduced your training and you i think you're getting more quality out of it by the sounds of it still working yeah exactly and it was it was i actually i must admit i found it was really good for morale when i was um like particularly when i was learning to run again it was really good for morale just switching stuff from miles to kilometers um you know rather than running like three miles you run 5k yeah and, so it and feels that, like you're going further i guess mentally yeah it was just yeah. yeah it was just like one of these sort of silly mental tricks um that you know we all we all see through immediately and we all know yeah. that it's not quite the case but actually it just you know by converting stuff into kilometers mm-hmm. it meant that it didn't it meant I wasn't running quite so slowly. Yeah. Like running at two miles an hour seems pretty lame, basically. Yeah. Whereas running at four Ks an hour is at least like, you know, yeah, there's at least something there. But um but no, so I was sort of using all of these little tricks when I was in training, but but yeah, basically spent six months um of effectively training, you know, as I as I used to for hundreds, um, like doing very long back to back you know, sort of days at weekends and stuff and, you know, pretty much reducing everything else I was doing. Like I was still doing a bit of time in the gym, lifting weights, and I was still doing a bit of rock climbing, um, all of which are really beneficial. You know, I think um, there's that classic uh, sort of issue that, that a lot of long distance runners have. They don't do enough core work, um, which for me, like climbing meant I didn't have to basically, I, you know, was absolutely sort of solid on that because of, of, of sort of bouldering and lead climbing. Yeah. Um, and then the gym stuff just helped me become a little bit more robust. Like I think for doing those, the really long sort of back to back to back events, you know, I think having just a little bit more mass so that you're not quite as vulnerable to injuries and stuff yeah. has proven really useful for me. Um, so yeah sort of summer of 2022 like we we started out on the coast path and to be honest i i i started i started out and i know this sounds slightly defeatist but like i really didn't know whether i was going to be able to finish it um because i didn't know whether my body would stand up to that much running anymore yeah um you know like as i said sort of my my left 
my left calf in particular doesn't really work eccentrically at all. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work very well concentrically either. But um, it was I, what I was most worried about was basically the impact on the Achilles tendon. Right. Um, and like because again, because I've got such limited movement in that, I knew that if I damaged the tendon, I, I wasn't going to be able to rehabilitate it anyhow. Um, so I kind it was a, it was a, a really peculiar mindset going into the event that I had to. I knew it was going to be really hard. I knew it was going to be like take all I had basically. But there was also that part of me where I was very, very concerned and considered around you've got to stop if this is going to transition from being like from it. It is the classic thing like transition from hurting to being painful. You've got to stop. Yeah. And how Um, do you differentiate between that? I mean, that's. For you, having done many, many long ultras, that must be hard to think, right, that's the moment where I need to stop because you're used to just pushing on. Yeah, it was it was a really difficult one. I kind of I kind of just trusted that, like you say, because I'd done enough of that kind yeah. of stuff, I kind of had to just trust that I would know. Um but it, it was a really difficult one because, like you've said, you also then have to be in the mindset the whole time of actually all of these little, you know, I, I sort of find during these really long runs that particularly for the first two weeks when your body's, you know, in shock and getting used to it and trying to get you to stop all the time, you know, I sort of found that effectively pain just circulated through the whole of like both my legs. Right. And you, you never quite knew like where was going to feel tight, where the next little niggle would crop up from. Um, but you just knew there was always something. And you kind of did have to, you know, contrary to what I've just said, you kind of did have to ignore it and run through it and trust that it would move on to somewhere else the next day. Yeah. Um, but no, there was a day, I think it was day 21 and unfortunately i was actually based out of my house we were running um in between sort of plymouth and and Sulcombe at the time and um i'd done i only took two in inverted commas rest days during the whole trip because i had to I basically had to get back to work so i had to move reasonably quickly um but even on the rest days we were still doing like 20k's a day instead of 40k's a day um and I got to the rest day on day f- 21 and uh, Jonah, the guy that was that was sort of driving the, the van that we were effectively using as a mobile aid station, um, I, I did about 14 kilometers of that day and my actually my right Achilles tendon had started flaring up a little bit. Ouch. Um, and, and I was, yeah, I, so I phoned him and was like, mate, I'm not, I'm not going to run 20Ks today because I, I don't think, I can and I don't think it's sensible um I'd rather like get home and try and figure this and see if there's a solution um but I that that was I really thought that might have been game over at that point like I'd got my right Achilles was pretty swollen and like was definitely was was definitely at the early stages of of getting like tendonitis um and I I I didn't know what to do because we were already doing like 
everything we should have done. Like we were already icing, resting, rolling, hot bath in the evening, like, you know, all, everything that you're meant to do to recover. Basically, we were we were already doing. And I had a pair of like old compression socks in my like in my cupboard somewhere. And I just, you know, I mean, obviously, as as most runners will know, like tendonitis is caused by a sort of it's a lateral whipping of the tendon. It's an irregular whipping movement, yeah. um, which I kind of figured was probably caused because the balance on my left leg is so bad. Um, my right often has to come down like a little bit early and sl- sometimes at a slightly peculiar angle. Um, so the the foot placement of my right foot is slightly irregular. Yeah. And I kind of figured this might be causing it. So yeah, we literally got home, whacked on some compression socks and I kind of, you know, felt, okay, well this might at least minimize that whipping motion. Um, and, and yeah, like, I mean, thankfully it worked, uh, you know, we, because I, I really wasn't sure what to do had it not, um, but yeah, basically wore wore a pretty pretty increasingly smelly pair of compression socks for the next sort of five days, and um, it got us through to the end. But that was that was a bit touch and go that one. Um, but that was for me that was the f- sort of first, and I would say probably the one of the most critical landmarks for me in terms of the you know the build up towards the South Pole because. I mean, the distance of it is we, we ended up doing a hun- uh, 1,043 kilometers. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's about 33,000 meters again as well throughout the whole thing. And we did that over 27 days, yeah. um, which is actually a little bit further than the pole. Obviously, you're not towing a super heavy polk behind you, yeah. um, but you are, you know, doing some quite significant vertical gain as well. Um, and that was the the first big one, which, you know, where from my point of view, I sort of finished that and thought, yeah, you know what, this South Pole idea, like, this is not just a pipe dream, like you have, like, physically, you have got this in you. Yeah, uh, so that, that was be a great over. feeling to think, yes, I, I can, I can do that. Yeah, the Southwest Coast Path was an, was an interesting, it was a really, really good learning experience for me, just in terms of doing really long stuff and really hard stuff and I mean we were you know really were moving we were doing over 40 kilometers a day for all but two of the days pretty much and the conditions were extremely hard it was you know during the heat wave last summer so it was it was getting up to sort of 40 degrees um and you know just it was in a way it was good because you didn't think about what you were drinking you just drank whatever you could get your hands on all the time basically yeah but yeah it it was it was a a really useful learning experience for a lot of reasons and certainly it yeah the unexpected stuff like dealing with myself post-expedition um was was really valuable to know as well and like it's you know one of the main reasons why with this one that's just happened um basically straight back to work on the monday um because you've just got to get you know get back to it and like you know i'm i'm lucky with the event that we've just done that actually the you know the distance in the distances involved the terrain involved etc like compared to the coast path it was it was actually pretty straightforward 
Yeah, so that was Manchester to London. That was, what, 370 kilometres? Yeah, ended up being about 350. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was so, you know, not, not dissimilar at all. And like, actually, it was it was pretty, it was quite a nice, like, certainly final week. Um, you know, got to do a lot of engagement with sponsors, a lot of engagement with uh, schools and such along the way. Um, whereas the first week we'd, we'd sort of done a lot of distance and had basically concentrated on getting the back of the trip broken, um, including like the, the first, well, the only weekend, which was a pretty punchy, like we did 82 Ks um, over Saturday and Sunday and in, in pretty in pretty miserable conditions if i'm being honest <laughs> um like yeah last weekend was i'm just thinking back it was not good <laughs> weather wise was it yeah no it was i mean fortunately i've uh, yeah fortunately my uh, my sponsor i'm really fortunate to be sponsored by uh, dinafit actually who are not a particularly well known brand in the uk um but they do make like fantastic trail running kit yeah um and the sort of the one of the reasons I mention it is because their Gore-Tex jacket absolutely saved me. Okay. Um, but it's also, you know, one of the things that I found going through this process is I had I had reasonably naively assumed that approaching particularly sort of outdoors brands, kit manufacturers, etc., about the South Pole, I had kind of assumed it was going to be a bit of a shoo-in, to be honest. Right. Um, you know, I'd, I'd kind of assumed, particularly within the, you know, the current climate where DE&I is obviously important to a lot of businesses, etc., yeah. that, you know, within the outdoors industry in particular, giving them a, you know, big flagship expert, etc., first disabled person to do, you know, to do this quite punchy thing and stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of assumed that particularly within the outdoors space, I wasn't going to struggle to find sponsors and stuff. Um and actually, the opposite couldn't have been more true. Right. Um, like, no one was interested at all. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of, it, it has been, I, you know, one thing that I will say is that it has been slightly disheartening as a disabled runner. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, don't get me wrong, I my my injury doesn't help me in the sense it's not particularly visually appealing. I, I just look like a normal person. Um, you know, I don't have a detachable leg or anything like that or a jazzy set of wheels that looks good in photographs and things. Um, so I I get from a... <laughs> sorry, I'm about to be very cynical, but I, I sort of... I get from an Instagram point of view, like, why I'm not the perfect, you know, disabled ambassador for brands. Okay. Um, but it... Yeah, it's it's been interesting approaching the like the marketplace as a disabled runner um who yeah who just looks like a slow runner basically um yeah it's 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 been a very interesting experience doing that certainly um and yeah having having taken quite a lot of time away from running did surprise me coming back and and finding that um yeah. i mean why do, why do you think that is any ideas or um uh, no not really i no not really i i don't know it's something which 
I think that, don't get me wrong, I, I absolutely understand that all of these brands are, you know, they already have pro teams. They, they're getting sponsorship requests like every day, all day. Um, you know, I, I understand it's a very saturated marketplace. Um, what, what I do find quite surprising is that certainly a lot of the brands that I'm familiar with from a trail running point of view and from a, from an ultra distance point of view, mm. um, like disabled athletes don't feature no. at all. Like you go and look at the athlete rosters of these brands on their websites and there is like, there's no one. Um, and that was, yeah, that's, that is disappointing, you know, cause yeah. I think there are, you know, there are disabled people in the trail running community. There are definitely, um, <clears throat> athletes who have been doing stuff, whether it be at races or doing events and, th and things like that. Um, you know, there, there definitely are people within the community with disabilities that I think, um, you know, if, if these people were represented, um, it, it would go to show that the, you know, the trails are more, are more accessible than I suspect a lot of disabled people possibly assume. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot we still need to do there, isn't there, in terms of, of showing people and inspiring people like you, I guess, which is, I guess is, you know, hopefully today's podcast with you helps and somebody out there might be listening and, and feeling inspired. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is certainly my hope, you know, yeah. I've, and I think I, you know, I, I'm sort of, um, <laughs> as I'm as guilty of it myself as anyone in the sense that I, I'm not specifically seeking to inspire disabled people to go trail running. Um, you know, I think it's a great thing for anyone to do. Um, and like, you know, I will, I will continuously pester my mates to, to come running with me and stuff like that. Um, and actually the thing that's been really nice is that on the event we've we've just finished, so on the Manchester to London event, we were able to get um, a lot of my corporate sponsors, um, like two companies in particular, uh, so Acre Capital and Specialist Risk, who are both London-based, um, they got about 30 of their staff out on a Thursday afternoon um, to come and meet me in Paddington and run the last 10Ks with me. Um, and that was that was really awesome from my point of view like i you know as you probably imagine and i suspect as as most weird niche ultra runners probably do like i do most of my training on my own yeah um and you, you are of course training for a solo expedition as well aren't you yeah, yeah it's, it's quite, quite nice yeah exactly so it's kind of i'm i'm certainly no no stranger to my own company um but like yeah it was sort of you know running running through central london um, you know, going through Hyde Park, past Buckingham Palace, past the Cenotaph, down to like Tower of London on the embankment and then stuff like that with 30 people um, behind you. You know, not only was that a pretty cool experience in itself, um, but the thing that was lovely and uh, like, you know, people were letting me lead the way mainly because I had the map. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> certainly, certainly some significantly quicker runners than me in that group. Um, but one of the things that was so cool about it was that you could, you could hear people enjoying themselves. Yeah. Like, you know, you could just hear people having fun behind you. Um, and 
I mean, firstly, I, I think it's really cool that those businesses let their staff like go for a run that afternoon. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that I love about it and like I consider myself really lucky with the sponsors that I do currently have because they, you know, particularly on the corporate side of things, they get what I'm doing. Like they understand the value that what I'm doing brings to a corporate environment. Um, mm. And they absolutely understand that, you know, there are lessons from high performance sport and from sports science and, and general you know, rules around performance that are just as applicable to a corporate setting as they are to a, you know, to an ultra marathon or to a long, you know, polar trek. Um, and it's been really, really awesome to be able to work with some of these companies as a sports scientist to help their staff perform better in the office. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I've, I've, I've found that ex- whole experience to be really awesome. Um, but it's so nice from my point of view, certainly, to be working with businesses that really understand the benefit that sport can bring to, you know, to people in general. I think I think that's a really, it certainly seems to be a really progressive attitude, which I really hope that more companies um, sort of see the light on, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think we are seeing more and more of that, aren't we? <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing that's great about it is that obviously, the more we see of it, the more that the, you know, the more the body of science is able to grow around it as well. Um, And, and, you know, we're now seeing some really, really interesting, like correlations between, for instance, like there was one study they did in Sweden, which I think is awesome, like really, really cool, where they're looking at the VO2 max of office staff. Um, so people who are sedentary for their job um, and they're looking at a correlation between um, cognitive performance in the office space and VO2 max and okay. they, they basically found a break point at 44 um, which is I would yeah roughly average for an adult um, but obviously average is a, a slightly loaded term but um it's kind of, you know, 44 is very respectable for a, you know, for a par- partially trained adult, basically, as a VO2 max. But yeah, they found a break point between 43 and 44, um, which which absolutely correlated to higher cognitive performance in the office at a higher VO2 max. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think, like, from my point of view as a performance scientist, I love studies like that like it was a well-run study it was a decent sample size like there was not a huge amount you know this wasn't like a couple of isolated instances this was over i think it was over 1200 participants in the study yeah um and i think it the thing that i love about it is you can you know you you can like personally i feel that as a performance scientist we should be going to the ceos of companies with data like that yeah and 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 saying to them like this is there you know yes it is an hour out of your day or an hour out of your company's day but there are demonstrable benefits um to to allowing your staff to exercise and to and to facilitating your staff being healthy 
you know, I, and I, I think, you know, the, that, that body of science is reasonably new. You know, sort of sports science is only 30 years old as a discipline. Um, but I just think it's really, really cool how how this body of evidence is growing and developing to to really show that everyone ought to be doing cardiovascular exercise, you know. Yeah, well, well hopefully more people will realise these benefits and we will see more of that. Um, so running's good for your brain, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you, Johnny. Um, just to finish up, do you, so just tell us what the next 12 months hold for you, really, in terms of, you know, physical training and, you know, getting everything together for a huge expedition. Yeah, um, so what, I'm... What have you got coming up? I'm in, I'm in the US uh, doing a week of ski testing just before Christmas. So we're trying mm. a... We're basically innovating a slightly new... Um, s- not as not a new setup but it's a slightly new combination of of skis bindings um so i it's one ben saunders tried a little while ago but we're basically using ski mountaineering skis um for the pole um so taking a set of yeah like really very high level dinafit uh ski mountaineering skis out there purely because they're lighter than cross-country skis yeah um so doing some that'll be the 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 kit nerd in me is is (laughs) extremely excited about going and doing that in in the us and then i've basically got four months in polar sweden um so doing all the technical training building on you know solid technical foundations i'm doing the montane lapland arctic ultra 500 in at the start of march um which is yeah 10 days 500 kilometers um largely self-supported the whole way there are aid stations and drops but they're pretty infrequent so that's gonna be i actually i actually think i'm more nervous about that than i am the pole like it's the the sort of the speed at which you have to travel and the distances which you have to cover are pretty severe yeah um, it'll be a good test for you won't it yeah yeah so where you are that'll be yeah that'll be um a very very interesting one and then i've got um a long three week solo straight after that or with with a week's break but straight after that so that'll be um a, a slightly more relaxed pace just uh you know making sure that everything's fine and that you know technically you know everything's happy but it's kind of doing that three weeks and trying to do it in a super sustainable manner so you're not getting like progressively more tired you're actually able to rest properly and recover properly despite the fact you're living on your own in the middle of the ulu somewhere out of your you know out of your tent in your sleeping bag um it's kind of really doing it in terms of this is this is living this is not um you know sort of not not exhausting yourself by the end of it basically um and then that that is it then in terms of time on snow before i go to the south pole like that's it so it's it's a pretty like it's a it's an intimidatingly short training block really yeah um but it i mean it it'll be absolutely amazing i mean i'm 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 so lucky that i'm able to be doing this full time as my job um it's like I'm still at the point where I'm kind of you wake up in the morning and you're like pinching yourself and it's like this is this is kind of ridiculous um that that I'm able to do this full time but um yeah and then yeah once that's all done then it's literally just sort of maintaining stuff I've got to put on a load of weight before I go down to Antarctica both muscle and fat 
yeah yeah basically basically spend a summer chunking up um (laughs) how long are you envisaging it will take you how long will you be out there so i'm hoping it'll take 40 days um i'm doing a mesna start which is um a slightly shorter it's a slightly more technical route at the start um but it's a slightly shorter route so it's 911 kilometers um so yeah i think it it's so weather dependent you know like i should be able to move reasonably swiftly over the terrain um but if you know if if the if the weather comes in and you're in your tent for five days because you can't move because of the weather there's nothing you can do about it um so i you know it's it's such a it's it's a a trip that that one is not likely to be able to repeat um so i'm i'm sort of inclined to err on the side of conservatism when it comes to packing food fuel etc um if it takes longer than 40 days it takes longer than 40 days i the competitor in me would like to do it as quickly as possible but um you know we'll we will see we will see yeah so you'd be taking a little bit more than than you need yeah i you know i'm 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 sure that i can find a place for it if it um (laughs) if if, if i don't need it all (laughs) So where can our listeners find out more? Are you on social media, Johnny? And, you know, there might be somebody out there who might be able to support you. Where can they get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm largely on Instagram and LinkedIn are the two that I normally use. And I'm, I'm catastrophically unoriginal on both. I am at Johnny Huntington on Instagram and Perfect. I am Johnny nice Huntington on LinkedIn. Man. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, no, thanks so much, Michelle. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I it's, hope, I hope it's, been a, it's been a joy talking to you, Johnny. Honestly, I've been engrossed. We've been chatting for over an hour, so it's been fascinating. And I wish you all the very best with your challenge. You'll have to come on nearer to the time or perhaps afterwards and tell us all about it. But I have no doubt that you'll you'll make it a success having heard your story. So thank you. Uh, thanks, Michelle. That's really kind of you. Cheers.